Welcome to the Arate Podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and today's guest is Bruce Van der See, CEO at Vanderfield Proprietary Limited. It's wonderful to have you along today, and I'm really looking forward to bringing this conversation to you with Bruce. I met him recently through the chair of his organisation, and I thought he had a fascinating story to tell. So I invited him on the podcast, and I think he'll really enjoy what he has to say about the agribusiness in Australia in general, and also his own organisation, Vanderfield. But before we get to that, let me briefly introduce myself to you for those who are new to the Arate podcast. My name is Richard Triggs, and I'm the managing partner of Arate Executive. And we recruit CEOs, senior leaders, and non-executive directors for our clients throughout Australia. So if you have any needs within your business that we can assist with from a recruitment point of view, please reach out to me and I'd love to have a conversation. Let me now introduce to you Bruce Vandersee. Vanderfield were established in 1963 by Gordon Vandersee, Bruce's father. Bruce has worked in the organisation for almost all of his professional career in a variety of roles before his current role as CEO of the organisation. They are a significant retailer of agricultural equipment throughout Queensland and the Northern Territory. Bruce lives with his family in Toowoomba, Queensland. Sit back and enjoy this conversation with Bruce Vandersee. Well, Bruce, uh, welcome to the Arate Podcast. It's great to have you along. It's uh, about two weeks out from Christmas, and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm starting to uh, feel the need for a break. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks very much, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here, and I'm looking forward to a break as well. Oh, excellent. So, uh, Bruce, um, uh, perhaps just to begin the conversation, just uh, let people listening know a little bit about your professional responsibilities. Okay, I'm the CEO of Vanderfield. Yeah. Uh, we are a um, large John Deere dealer group. Okay. Uh, operating throughout Queensland, Northern Territory, and, yep. and Western Australia, top end of Western Australia as well. Okay. And for people who don't know what a John Deere is, tell us about that. Okay, so we're involved in the farm machinery yep. business. So John Deere is a large, uh, in fact, the world's largest agricultural manufacturer of tractors, okay. combine harvesters cotton pickers, sprayers, right. so the whole range of John Deere, of <laughs> agricultural equipment. Yeah. Um, and so we represent those guys as their uh, franchise dealers right. in, in the regions that we operate. So. Right. And they're a US company. They're, they're primarily US, that's where they're based, yeah. but they have factories worldwide. Right. Okay. And from what I understand, in the world of tractors and farmers, it's a little bit like in Australia, Holden versus Ford. Uh, there's sort of a similar thing, isn't there? John Deere versus what's their big competitor? Well, the fact that you don't know means that that doesn't <laughs> exist, Richard. Well, not in a not for a, not for a Brisbane suburban, no. maybe. No, look. In fact, it does depend because uh, you know John Deere have a full range from right from small ride-on mowers okay. uh, to small compact tractors, right through to the biggest um, 600 horsepower. Um, four-wheel drive tractors so uh, their competitor that's in the small range is completely different to the one that's okay, in the right. big range so okay. so if you're a, if you're a uh, large ag uh, it's it's probably the case product right if you're a small ag competitor it's probably Kubota from Japan oh, so yeah. okay so it, it's not there's not one brand right. that's, a, that's a key competitor right and uh Give us a sort of a sense of the value of some of these pieces of machinery. I imagine the, the you know the the bigger equipment must be very expensive. Yeah, we have the the one product we have that's that's in the seven figure range is cotton pickers, right? Um, which we do we actually market those in US dollars. Okay. So with the dollar where it is today, it's it's sitting in a. Australian, you know, about one point one something right. uh, million for a for a cotton picker. Right. So uh, the the large tractors, you know, they're probably around the can get up to six hundred odd okay. thousand. Okay. Um, and then, you know, we have other combine harvesters that are also very expensive and right, right through to 
you know, one of the things is the, the smaller tractors, are, you know, they're very competitive with all the other brands in price. But John Deere, the perception is that the, the Deere, John Deere will be a more expensive right, okay. unit, even though often it sometimes isn't. Right. Okay. So. And, um, I mean, you carry things other than John Deere in terms of uh, other types of machinery and products, <clears throat> etc. Yep. So we have, uh, we do sell Hino trucks from okay. Japan. Yep. And we have those both in Toowoomba and in Darwin. Okay. So that's our sort of major other right. industry that we yeah. play in is the, the truck, which is okay. primarily light and medium he, medium duty, but there's also a heavy duty versions of those. Um, and we also sell a lot of other ag products that right. go along with the um, Manitou uh, telescopic loaders made in France. Okay. Um, we sell a lot of tillage, uh, horse from Germany mm-hmm. and and other um, brands that, you know, John Deere don't make everything. Right. Um, and sometimes they make things overseas that they don't bring to Australia. Mm-hmm. So so we complement mm-hmm. the John Deere product with other ag right. manufacturers, some of which are local okay. Australian manufacturers okay. as well. And uh, just give us a bit of a scope of the size of um, Vanderfield <laughs> in terms of uh, how many employees and so on. So we're approximately 360 employees okay. Australia-wide. And... Um, yeah, we you know we're uh, uh, we are John Deere's largest dealer group. Mm-hmm. Have been for a couple of years in Australia. In Australia, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Um, we are part owned by a, um, a US uh, family company as well mm-hmm. called RDO Equipment. Okay. And they're uh, based in Fargo in North Dakota. Yeah. Everyone knows the movie. Yeah. Well, and, it's a TV series and, now. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, and those guys, in fact, are the largest U.S. dealers right. for John Deere, which, yeah. which by default makes them the largest dealers in the world, okay. effectively. So, so we're um, very proud to be part, you know, uh, closely aligned with mm-hmm. them. And in fact, partners here in the in Australia. Okay, okay, great. And the business has been around for a long time. So our business has been around since 1963. Yeah. So, you know, coming up to. Our fifty-fourth year, right? Um, so your second or third generation? Second generation. Second. My dad started the company. Okay. Uh, in Toowoomba, yeah. started in Toowoomba back then. Early early days, he was a Chamberlain tractor dealer, mm-hmm. and um, Chamberlain were purchased or partly purchased by John Deere okay. in about nineteen sixty-nine or seventy, um, and that. Uh, I think at the time the strategy was to get the dealer network that Chamberlain had mm-hmm. in Australia, and so a lot of the Chamberlain dealers from that era became uh, a lot of the Chamberlain dealers became John Deere dealers right. as well. So, and in in the early eighties, the Chamberlain name kind of disappeared mm-hmm. from the from the whole scene. They stopped mm-hmm. manufacture in Australia, as sadly uh, that happens. With, mm-hmm. With Australian manufacturing, but um, mm. yeah, that's what's happened. Right. Okay, good. Well, I'm sure we'll talk a bit more about that later in this yep. conversation, but uh, let's go back to where it all began and mm-hmm. uh, tell us about uh, you know your early life, where you were born, and you yep. started to mention your dad in the business, but uh, mum, dad, brothers and sisters, etc. Yep. So I was born in Clermont in okay. central Queensland, so that's north of Emerald. Uh, my dad was a farmer there. He, he had drawn a ballot block in those... Right. In the 1954, I think he he was given a block of land mm-hmm. as they did then in exchange for him developing that country. So right. he had a block there um, uh, northeast of Clermont. And was he an immigrant to Australia? Or? No, no. Um, so his grandfather was. Okay. <laughs> so so my great grandfather. So we've been we've been in the country for a pretty long time. Yeah, our family. Yeah. yeah. Um, uh, so. I was pretty young when we left Clermont mm-hmm. to come back to Toowoomba. So I've got um, three other brothers and an and a elder sister, mm-hmm. um, uh, most of whom, well, all of whom are still shareholders in the company. Right. And basically all of us have worked in the company at one stage or another. So, yeah. so a number of my uh, siblings are retired now. Okay. And uh, just myself and my younger brother are still in the company. Right. Okay. And so um, where did school happen? Uh, Toowoomba. Yeah. Uh, went to state school in Toowoomba. Okay. Um, East State School and then Mount Lofty. Right. High School, which is Toowoomba State High School. Okay. And, uh, you know, still 
uh, were both were within walking distance or right. push bike riding distance from yeah. home. So. And uh, what sort of things were you into when you were at school? <clears throat> um, oh, look, I wasn't. Uh, you know, um, school was. I was never a great student at school, so studying why I wasn't. Right. <laughs> Um, yeah, no, I didn't. I wasn't particularly into a lot of sports or anything either. I just, you know, probably rode my bike a bit. Right. Okay. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah. worked in uh, Dad's business on the weekend. I uh, not not a great deal. Right. Um, yeah, a little bit later on, obviously, but um, I actually uh, uh, finished uh, at the. I, I had I didn't intend to go into the business when I finished high school. Right. I started a. Um, a degree course at Gatton College, which yeah. which uh, I didn't finish. In an agri... Yeah, it was basically a rural management degree, right. um, but I only completed one year. So and what was the intention to go and work as a farmer? <clears throat> yeah, that was that was my thoughts at that time. Okay, um, but you know, having having been born on a farm and being too young to have appreciated the the life of a of a farming kid. Yeah. You know, I never got that opportunity, sort of thing, because I was right. I was too young. But um, you know, I had that in, intention. Yeah. But when I um, when we the Gatton College and I had a mutual agreement about my future there, uh, <laughs> don't come we, back. <laughs> um, my dad said, "Well, you, why don't you come and work work at the at Vanderfield?" Right. So, so okay. that's what I did. And um, so, what was uh your first role in the business. So my first role was working in spare parts. Okay. And um, we we had the old uh, Cardex system. Right. You know, pre-computer, uh, everything was recorded on on little the, cards. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, with sliding drawers that came out, and you you know marked checked stock in, and you right. checked it out, and okay. everything was manual, of course. Right. So what uh, year are we talking? Uh, 1979. 1979. Okay, right. That's when I started work uh-huh. for my dad. Okay. Um, and so at the time, were you excited about working the family business or was Oh, it- yeah. Okay. Oh, look, I was. And, and quite frankly, I, you know, um, you know, it's hard to recall what, what thoughts I was having at that time, but, you know, I was, um, and, and, you know, this might be a revelation to if any of my family members listen, but... My eldest brother Ray was um, uh, quite a successful uh, rally driver. Right. In, in was doing Queensland rally events at that time, and in fact was the Queensland rally champion in okay. 1977. Right. So, so the, his success was probably meant my lack of success at at uh, university because I was more intent on going and going around driving at night on right. annoying local Gatton farmers. Okay. <laughs> In my little little Toyota Corolla, instead of studying. So, <laughs> so anyway, but um, uh, no. Look, I was I was very uh, happy to be part of the the business, and yeah. as time went on, mm-hmm. you know, I started to enjoy the interaction with farmers, mm-hmm. and and you know, dealing with customers was something I, I got a lot of pleasure from. You know, serving someone, getting getting a um, a, a result for that customer helping him out of a spot and so yeah. forth so and what's what did the business look like at that time in terms of <clears throat> the size etc yeah so we had um uh the toowoomba branch was was still our only uh location at that mm-hmm. time in mm-hmm. and, and we um my dad and his brother claude were, were both involved in the company mm-hmm. um dad's brother claude came along um to join my dad and I'm not sure what year that was I think in the at least in the early 70s mm-hmm. um, and so they were running the business then you know I guess we probably had um, I'd be guessing but you know maybe 30 odd people right. working there we were actually distributing a locally made planter nationally uh-huh. so not only were we a, a retail dealer but we were doing a distribution business okay. yeah. as well and soon after the I, I joined. I, I went with my brother Ray again to be part of that distribution part, which mm-hmm. was still located there, mm-hmm. um, and working that exclusively. Yes, for the, the right. Uh, there was a locally made planter called a Mason planter. Right. Uh, we would contribute the John Deere componentry that would fit to that. Okay. The the iron that was made in Toowoomba, mm-hmm. and then we'd distribute it. Mm-hmm. 
around the place. So okay. we um, so we didn't really start expanding until 1980. In fact, 1980, we sent a, uh, a technician to St George. Mm-hmm. Um, there was a, a requirement for on, on-site servicing at St George, so mm-hmm. we sent a guy called Rob Porter to St George in 1980, built a branch there in 1982. Um, right. And then we started like a little, uh, I guess, a, a rush of expansions. So we did St George in 82, Gatton in 83, and we went to Warwick in 1984, which, mm-hmm. um, you know, we, we only maintained for about 10 years. So, mm-hmm. And then we, we withdrew from Warwick. So. Right. Okay. And so 79 to 16, so, you know, almost 40 years. Mm-hmm. Um, I imagine that you've seen a heap of change, not only in terms <clears throat> of the technology, but just in terms of the whole of industry and... Yep. And so on. You know, what over that period of time, what have been some of the sort of the key milestones that have been important in terms of your business in the broader sort of sector? Mm. Um, oh, look, I think I think there's been uh, we we saw a a lot of development happen in the uh, western areas of of our of our area, like St George, Durham, Bandy. You know, there was in the late 80s, um, early 90s, there was a lot of new developments happen. Properties like Cubby Station, you know, got developed from being, you know, a a few hundred dollars an acre country to being worth thousands of dollars an acre because it's got irrigation and so forth. Okay. And what are Uh, they generally in cotton or? Those places are cotton properties. So um, so those sort of... Uh, big expansion era so mm-hmm. pl- areas like um, and I don't know exactly the times but but during the 80s and, and 90s saw a lot of the you know big developments happen in western Queensland and western New South Wales so and, and why was that were there, were there um, a lot of incentive to do it you know or uh, no I just think it was it was just timing you know okay. like a lot of the um, traditional cotton areas of like around on the Darling Downs around Cecil Plains, they had been irrigating cotton there for many years, mm-hmm. um, and then I think it was just a, a you know a timing thing that people said, well, here's an opportunity. The St George irrigation area had been there since the mid '60s. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully, I get these timings right. Someone will tell me if I'm wrong. No. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, you know, so there'd been cotton there for a while, but then it was understood that licences were available for irrigating along rivers. Mm-hmm. And so people started to um, develop those licences. Right. And, you know, clear country. And once people saw what could what could be achieved, they got into it and started developing country. Right. So, okay. Um, you know, and, and quite frankly... Uh, um, it's been the making of those western places, St George, Durham, Bandy. Mm-hmm. Um, you know that, that's just been um, you know the availability of water mm-hmm. has been the making of the, the west, if you like. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. And so um, you know uh, you said that uh, it wasn't until 1980 that you started to grow. So you know what were some of the you know the key uh, changes in the business over you know yep. since that. <clears throat> Yeah, since that time, I guess we, um, yeah, John Deere, a lot of our strategy is, is aligned with what John Deere are trying to do and so okay. forth. So because you're their, you know, licensed um, franchisee, yep. uh, it is your own business, but you've got a shareholding with an American company that's also John Deere. I mean, for the, I don't have much experience in terms of this space. How much of your strategy is directed by John Deere and how much of it is self yeah. Well, yeah. So, so there's a fair bit of our strategy is 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 developed along parallel lines with what John Deere would like us to do. Right. Yes, we are we are an independent independent company. Yeah. And the U.S. shareholding is only a recent thing, the last yeah. four years. So, so that change is not, um, um, uh, you know. Um, doesn't affect what I'm talking about here with the with the development back in the 80s, etc. No, sure. yeah. So the um, because John Deere is the majority of our business, so we rely a lot on them. If they say we would like you to uh, 
develop in a certain way, you know, we, we, we try and conform with that. Right. Despite the fact that we are completely independent from yeah. them, we have a franchise that says, much like Toyota or mm-hmm. any other uh, major one that says, you know, um, we need your dealership to look like this. Mm-hmm. We need you to make these offerings, these finance op- offerings to customers, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. We need you to offer our full line of equipment. Mm-hmm. Um, therefore, you know, we we just we we go along with that. Right. Okay. And um, to be to be fair about it, John Deere have been a very successful company for 178 years. Yeah. <laughs> Um, and so, the, you know, it, it's, sorry, 187 years, I right. apologise. Okay. Um, and so, you know, we've been very, very blessed to be aligned with such a uh, successful mm-hmm. company. Mm-hmm. And so back in the, um, the 80s, all of this development's happening. Yep. Um, John Deere, no doubt, started to pay some, you know, attention to that. And For sure. And between you, you started to think about, well, you know, how do we roll out a strategy that's going to enable us to you know, capitalise on these new opportunities yes. in the market. Yeah, for sure. Right. So I, I guess to, to, to stay on the strategy point, you know, our focus, you know, has always been quite basic in that the focus is on customers, yep. customer service. In fact, the the whole um, uh, embryo of an idea for a dealership came when my dad had... Um, uh, troubles as a farmer getting parts. Right. So he's farming in, you know, Mackay, uh, sort of uh, southwest of Mackay. So mm-hmm. th- four hours drive or three hours drive from Mackay, and he did a belt on his on his you know some sort of auger or whatever it was, and he describes a story on one of our YouTube clips of of his the trouble he had to go to to get a replacement belt. Yeah. Um, and he determined when he went into business as a machinery dealer that mm-hmm. we'd we'd that'd be a key focus for us mm-hmm. is making sure that we were really adding value to farmers. Right, you know, got to have enough parts. Yeah, and you know if any of our customers listen to this, they'll probably say, "Well, Bruce, you still haven't got enough." You know? <laughs> um, and having some uh, service support that goes with that. So. Right. Since since the early eighties, we've had we've owned a, a company aircraft, mm-hmm. and now we own a couple. Okay, um, and that's just that's just purely been a strategy to say, you know, when we sell machines to customers who travel, like right. contract contract harvesters mm-hmm. who might travel to southern New South Wales, right. they have a problem. We need to help them out quickly. Okay. You know, we need that capacity to be able to do it. Right. So, so, so it's that's a bit like those old war movies where the plane flies on and drops a care package, you know, on a parachute <laughs> well, out to them, or do you actually well, land? We actually land. <laughs> <laughs> we have one aircraft where you can open a window and throw something out. Oh, really? Does that ever happen? Um, I don't know that it has. Right. <laughs> In fact, I think it might be illegal yeah, to do okay, something right. like that. Okay, well, uh, <laughs> yeah, hopefully there's but, nobody listening in. But it's but to be honest, we have uh, you know we have landed at the end of fields, right? Um, and uh, you know, having the right aircraft to do that sort of work is is important. Yeah, sure. So landing on gravel strips and right. okay. and uh, tail drains at the ends of cotton fields are quite well graded, mm-hmm. long, uh, flat. Mm-hmm safe places to land so mm-hmm. quite often we'll land there and and okay. we've 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 always had uh, technicians who can mm-hmm. fly so it might be that one guy goes flies out there does mm-hmm. the job and then and then can come home right so, i've interviewed john wagner for the podcast yep do yep. you use his airport at all we have had we have used it right um so we've we've got a hangar at the original toowoomba airport yeah and we have used the Wagner one when the weather hasn't allowed us to land right. in Toowoomba. So it's a ex- uh, very <clears throat> impressive facility. Absolutely, I've yeah. used it a lot for commercial flights. Right, and uh, I think Toowoomba's really got it getting or got behind it heavily. So yeah. it's a great, tremendous uh, blessing to Toowoomba to have that mm-hmm. that airport facility. Mm-hmm. Flights to Melbourne, flights to Sydney, etc. Right. So. Okay, so it's the eighties. You start to geographically broaden the business but the strategy is pretty simple we just want happy customers very very much right. that's the case okay um so we you know we've we've uh 
as, as those industries expanded, particularly, mm-hmm. you know, I, I talk a lot about the, the Western places because I, I spent five years at our St George mm-hmm. branch and I was there from 86 to 91, so I witnessed a lot of that development, yeah. a lot of those new projects going up mm. out there, which, you know, warmed my heart mm-hmm. <laughs> seeing, mm. seeing all that going on. So, um, so we had to, to adapt to be able to work with these guys and and John Deere fortunately had a lot of products that you know we we aligned very much with mm-hmm. irrigated cotton you know John Deere you know uh, at the moment have a hundred percent of the cotton picker market Do so they? so it's a right it's a very strong position sure uh, and and they also have a strong position in amongst the with the tractors and sprayers that mm-hmm. go with the irrigated okay. cotton so right and. Um and so just uh, uh, as the industry became more, um, I suppose, what's the word I'm looking for, uh, sophisticated, mm-hmm. um, you're getting big investments of money and you're getting people who are you know, very commercially orientated. Yep. I imagine that the sort of the expectations of your client base, you know, has changed as well. For sure. Yep. Yep. Mm. Yes. No, we're, we're certainly... Um, you know, we, we've had to make sure we are. I mean, it's it's basically more of the same. It's yeah. more of the same, just but having more people and more mm-hmm. service capacity and tools and mm-hmm. and uh, uh, abilities to deal deal with these uh, with these bigger corporate customers. Mm-hmm. But ultimately, they're the same. You know, there's many big family farm farmers that are. Yeah have equal sized operations to some of the corporates mm-hmm. so you know the sophistication of those farmers has you know it's it, it's all gone along and mm-hmm. quite frankly the cotton industry is has been one of the most exciting ones to be part of um you know it's 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 been the best at i think research and development mm-hmm. at getting young people involved in the in the industry um, at, at attracting investment from outside, you know, it's, okay. it's been quite a successful one. Why do you think that cotton's done it more in ch- uh, successfully than others? Um, maybe because it's newer. It's okay. a, new, a newer industry. Um, so how long has cotton been in um, Australia for? <clears throat> well, <laughs> um, my dad recall my dad who's not 91. Right. Still works in the business? <laughs> well, no. Well, no. <laughs> he's he's okay. still very interested in the business. Yeah, yeah. Um, my dad recalls as a teenager, in fact, about 13, hand-picking cotton in, uh, um, near, near um, Eidsvold in, in sort of central Queensland between Monto and Eidsville. Right, yeah. Krakow, somewhere there. Okay. Um, but, you know, it was very much, you know, tiny then. But mm. I guess the cotton industry in, in Australia really kicked off heavily when uh, some guys from the United States came out here to mm-hmm. grow cotton. You know, there's a number of families that moved to the Wee War District and then some to the Darling Downs areas, and they really got the cotton industry started. So Right. But anyway, I mean, I've talked a lot about cotton. We're involved in a lot of other yeah, yeah, sure. <laughs> sugar. You know, we've recent years, uh, so four years ago, we expanded into central Queensland. Right. And that uh, exposed us now to the sugar industry. Yeah. Um, and um, and more of the cotton industry in the Emerald mm-hmm. District as mm-hmm. well. So after now, I suppose a lot of the areas would have traditionally been tobacco as well, but not so much anymore. <clears throat> yeah, there's been, yeah, I, I'm not sure when the last tobacco crop was grown in Australia, but... Um, oh, so not growing at all anymore? I'm not sure. Right, okay. I don't think it is. Yeah, okay. But look, I, again, I, I might get shot down <laughs> because I don't know, but I'm not aware of any tobacco in our areas. Right. There was tobacco in around, in fact, around Inglewood, there was some tobacco places there, yeah. but hasn't been for right. decades. I, I lived in Cairns uh, for four years in the late 90s, and yeah. certainly there was tobacco happening up there then. Then, okay. Yeah. Well, if it is, it's probably still in the Atherton, right. Atherton yeah, Tableland okay. area. So, And what about, um, you know, obviously in more recent years, the uh, CSG and, you know, um, the oil and emerging sort of oil and gas space and yep. so on, has there been any um, interest in broadening your business out to service those markets as well? Uh, yeah, look, we've... We've certainly had some involvement with them, and it's mm-hmm. it's a very touchy subject for some farmers, yeah, uh, because of uh, the you know there's a real push to develop or, or put some wells right in the middle of some of the 
best productive country around the Darling Downs. Right. Um, prior to that, it was mainly the wells were in, you know, on cattle country or or some, you know, less productive um, from a farming perspective right. country. So um, they have been customers of ours because they've bought properties and they've had water excess water uh-huh. that they've that's come out as part of the process of coal seam gas mm-hmm. and they've used that to develop some irrigation okay pardon me that hasn't been a huge um sort of on flow from that mm-hmm. um and in recent times with the with the price of uh and the stage that the industry is at the price of gas it's it's there's been a, a slowdown in that in that game so mm. it's been more of a maintenance um, um, timing for them rather than the development phase so mm-hmm. that phase is kind of over for right. now but I think you know there might be more coming along okay and so when you think about the business <clears throat> over that period of time and obviously you've organically grown and and so on uh, has it been smooth sailing the whole way or have there been some pretty challenging times oh no very challenging times <laughs> where um, uh, we are a um, um, industry that's affected by weather a fair bit sure and so the um, ups and downs of the weather has been a biggest our biggest challenge to mm-hmm. our industry we um, with some of our expansion we've we've tried to geographically um, limit our risk mm-hmm. from a weather p- point of view so we went to you know uh, the northern territory back in 99 and so forth and that was partly to be there for the expansion of the north, yep. um, and uh, and to give us a bit of geographical spread. Mm-hmm. But yeah, look, our industry has gone through some you know some really tough times mm-hmm. with with uh, cash flow crises, and yeah. and you know you you have a year when you sell a lot of pickers, and then there's a lot of trade-ins that come, and then it goes dry, and no one wants to buy them, and right. you know so so it's. We've definitely had our challenging times, yeah. that's for sure. I imagine inventory management must be a massive uh, strategic imperative for you. Yes, very much so. We Every uh, product that comes down the, the line in the John Deere factory mm-hmm. uh, either has the name of a customer on it through a dealer mm-hmm. or a dealer's name on it. So right. um, we effectively have to, everything we sell, we have to... Uh, plan mm. five to eight months ahead for right. So, uh, particularly in a, in a major product sense. So, yeah. so we try as much as we can to forward sell machines mm. to customers and get them to think, you know, eight months ahead. Um, but we also need to have a, a fair amount of inventory of, mm. of new inventory. But then there's also the used equipment. So, mm. you know, we could we can be uh, holding machines that are. You know, four or five hundred thousand dollars worth second hand, right? right. Uh, in the hope that you know someone's going to come mm. along to buy that. Mm. So, so yeah, there, there's a huge inventory mm. requirement for us. Okay. Um, now coming back specifically to you and your career. So you left school, you go to uni, you do a year, you drop out, you come into the business, you know, managing or working in spare parts. And as you developed, I mean, obviously as CEO now, you know, did you from a leadership point of view, did you you know get much in the way of managerial sort of leadership education? Did you have mentors that assisted you in developing your own style? Yeah, tell us about that. Um, I, I guess I read I read some books, mm-hmm. um, and uh, you know took a lot from you know I used to listen to um, you know Zig Ziglar cassettes, oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and you know just uh, listening to people and my dad still you know still a strong mentor yeah. for myself and I'm you know fortunate at my age to still have a, my dad around is, yeah, sure. is still a, a key uh, input into into how I do things mm-hmm. um, no but I and I did things like the you know the company directors course and that mm-hmm. sort of stuff but mm-hmm. In terms of leadership, no, I just specifically read uh, things about leadership. You know, was you know very interested in in that 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 concept. Yeah. You know, having you know observed uh, people's styles. Um, you know, in, in business and so forth. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, you know, often my dad used to 
uh, or still says, you know, that referring to some people's leadership style, he said they'd rather have a fight than a feed. Right. You know, so, you know, we're very much, um, uh, you know, the sort of business people who want to, you know, have customers who are happy dealing with us. Mm-hmm. We're not we're not hard nosed on things, and mm-hmm. and uh, you know, and I think hopefully that's how our suppliers see us as well. Mm-hmm. And a lot of your employees have been with you for a long time, haven't they? <clears throat> yes, um, yeah, we've got a lot of long term people, right? And, and you know, there's, you know, I don't know how we compare as an industry goes, but mm-hmm. we do have a good number of people who are now over 30 years with the company, but, mm-hmm. you know, and there's probably uh, a gap and then there's a lot of fresh, yeah. fresh faces, you yeah. know, but, um, you know, that in our industry, you know, that sort of longevity of employment is, is attractive mm-hmm. because, you know, you, you get, you, you know, you're still dealing with machines, you know, customers still own machines that are 30 or 40 year old. Right. Items, so yeah, sure. you can't train that sort of industry mm-hmm. knowledge into someone who's been with you for two years. Mm-hmm. And so, as your sort of leadership managerial responsibilities escalated over time, you know, were there some some points where you thought, okay, I've got a skill gap here, and I really need to, you know, develop that particular element of what I'm all about in order to be successful. Um, you were talking past or present? <laughs> well, let's talk about both, I suppose. Um, yeah, absolutely. And I'm I'm very much aware of my current uh, shortcomings. Okay. And we we, you know, you try and have people around you that can mm-hmm. you know fill those gaps. And you know, certainly there's some areas in in the you know that that I deal with that I don't enjoy and mm-hmm. naturally and others that I do. Uh-huh. Um, and, you know, I guess you just tend towards doing the things that you enjoy doing more. Right. Uh, but that can get you into a, right. a bit of strife. As so well. what are the things that you most and things that you least enjoy then? Oh, getting personal now. <laughs> <laughs> I most enjoy interaction with customers. Yeah. Um, you know, uh, talking to people who are developing new ideas mm-hmm. or new new projects and so forth. Um, you know, I think I, uh, you know, I really enjoy that whole development phase of things and, you know, seeing what's, what's potential up in Northern Australia, mm-hmm. you know, staying in touch with what's going on there is something that's, you know, very dear to me. Yeah. And, and being able to demonstrate our ability to add value and be mm-hmm. a, be part of the, the service infrastructure for those sort of developments is something that I'd like to yeah. to develop. Okay. Um, the things I don't like doing is is um, things like performance reviews, right? And stuff like that. Yeah, sure. <laughs> so um, yeah, and you know, uh, we're, we're <clears throat> the changes we had four years ago when mm-hmm. we had a new partner coming into the business. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a, there's a good discipline with that that that. Um, you know, those guys are a much bigger company than, yeah. than we are. Yep. They've got a lot of uh, disciplines that they've, they've had that we've adopted, mm-hmm. and that's been good. But it's also challenging, um, you know, dealing with, the, with, you know, some of the, um, uh, you know, some of those disciplines that come with that that you think, well, what do we, you know, I'm not sure we need to do that. You yeah. Know? <laughs> and I suppose also you've got an external board too, don't you? So how long have they been in place for? Well, we've had external board members for many years, right? Um, but the the when you say external, we do, we 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 only have one person who's an external, oh, non ex- right? Your independent chair and our independent chairman, yeah. And the other guys are uh, representing, you know, the shareholders, right? The other fifty percent shareholders yeah. in the company. So, okay. so um, um, yeah, but we've we've had. Uh, I guess probably since I did the company director's course, mm-hmm. I've had an, a non-executive director mm-hmm. involved for mm-hmm. for so that's I don't know how many years that is now probably close to twenty I guess right okay um, so you know talking about performance reviews I mean you've got uh, you've got an independent chair you've got a US shareholder mm-hmm. you've got um, you know the uh, John Deere business so. <clears throat> Your performance is under a lot of scrutiny, isn't it? Oh, Richard, <laughs> <laughs> tell me about it. <laughs> oh, look, you know, I think over time you you become um, 
less stressed about right that sort of thing. But yeah, um, yeah I, you know, I, I I'm more concerned about um, the performance mm. uh, review that I get from our customers. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, that's the thing that I you know really focus on a lot. Yeah, and um, uh, and the bigger you get as a company, the harder that is to get. Mm to get right, mm-hmm. you know, mm. you know, how do you, uh, you take, you take on a new, uh, branch or a new territory with new people. And, and most times, you know, 99% of those people are really good people, you know, yeah. and they really already have a good, uh, a culture and ethic. Yeah. And, you know, I think how, how do I best instill, um, uh, what I want into those people. And the only thing I could, the only thing I could think of to say in a very short uh, sentence to, to get it across to them um, was to say, you know, if you make a decision to help a customer, you'll never get in trouble for that decision. Right. So you you make a call that says, okay, this customer's desperate. He needs me to, you know, charter a helicopter to get this part out to him. Mm. And you make that decision... Uh, on your own bat, yeah. You know you're not going to get in trouble if you're uncomfortable making the decision. Yeah. Check with someone. Sure. But if you think it's the right thing to do, mm-hmm. you go ahead and do it, and you're not going to ever get in trouble. Right. Um, now, by me saying that, I've got in trouble myself <laughs> because you know it, people remind me of that. You know, yep. and I think, oh, what did you do that for? You know, mm. what you said. Right. <laughs> but um, you know, I think you know. For me, uh, I really want people on the ground who are going to be able to d- make decisions themselves mm. and know that um, I'm not the person that they have to impress. Mm. It's the customer is the person that, mm. okay. that they really need to make happy, you know? Yeah, sure. So. And so when you now look out to the future, you know, what are the things that you're excited about achieving in the business over, say, the next five years or so? Um, look, I think... Um, you know, there, there might be a possibility of some more, you know, further expansions for us. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm excited about being part of agriculture. Mm-hmm. I think, you know, the ag industries in Australia are, you know, we're well, quite frankly, we're having a good run mm-hmm. at the moment. It's not depressed like like mining might be and, mm-hmm. and so forth. So, um, you know, we want to be, um, the ag, the industry needs to be, promoting itself as being, you know, this is a, a really exciting part of yeah. the world to be involved in, you know. Well, I think, we, you know, with the emerging middle class in China and India in particular, yep. you know, there's a, a much greater appetite uh, for, you know, uh, food and, and for quality products that Australia yes. can deliver. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Mm. So we're, you know, I think we are in in the good times. I think there's been a lot of technology gone into you know plant production such that you know we can cater for with droughts better yeah than we have in the past mm. i think there's been a lot of work done with irrigation and water availability that you know it's not raining anymore mm. and and quite frankly i don't think it's raining any less right <laughs> um you know we've had we've seen fluctuations over the years yeah i'm not concerned that there's some worldwide trend to worse conditions mm-hmm. i think that's not uh, necessarily the case mm-hmm. um controversial statement yes there. yes i'm happy to make that <laughs> statement um you know because quite frankly over the years i think we've just seen a gradual improvement yeah in in most areas of of everything right um, and, and so you know if you look at the mining industry uh Basically, because of improvements in technology, they're mm. able to access um, resources mm. with new technology that were previously unavailable cheaply. I imagine in the agri-sector it's the same too, in that with improvements in technology, it's enabling you know, to get better productivity out of land than would have previously been yeah, the case. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. You know, again, uh, talk about the cotton industry. Um, when I was at St George in... You know, 1990, three bales per acre. Mm-hmm. I'm sorry to talk in in a imperial measurement, that's, that's but uh, three bales per acre was was the norm. Mm-hmm. You know, it was a was a good goal to achieve. Okay. You know, 
and people were achieving that regularly. Now it's five to six bales per acre. Right. Now, you know, you don't get that sort of improvement other than by people focusing on uh, technology in mm. that plant breeding and genetically modifying mm. the, the plant. So not only are they getting these incredibly much better yields, mm-hmm. but they're, you know, you hear you heard stories back then of spraying for insects, you know, 17 mm-hmm. times in a season. Right. Now it's like two. Yeah. So not only have they got incredible yields, but their, you know, their input costs are mm-hmm. in fact lower and um and and the machinery is is uh, again another controversial statement the machinery is more reliable yeah um only controversial to some of my customers right. who tell me it's not right um they and, don't build it like they used to no but what they say well that's what they say but right. you know, generally that's not really yeah. an honest statement but um uh you know the the technology in in harvesting of of mm-hmm. cotton now is you know, so much better than it was, mm. and so so. There's technologically, life is is better mm. um, for uh, for production agriculture. Mm. And I imagine that uh, you know robotics and artificial intelligence are going to have a tremendous impact on your business. They are, and and quite frankly, the um, you know we need to embrace new technology, even if it sounds like it might be disruptive to what we're doing you know the the um you know i uh, listened to the um interview with with campbell newman and yep. what those guys are doing there in central queensland yeah and i think that's very exciting that um you know it makes a lot of sense to have unmanned um machines running up and down a field 24 mm-hmm. 7 you're not you don't have to worry about um uh, human resources issues or safety issues mm-hmm. or whatever um, it just makes a lot of sense for that sort of thing you know there's still going to be a need to turn the earth yes <laughs> it's going to be hard to do that with with you can do it with unmanned machines yeah it's going to be hard to do that with light yeah. light machines like yeah. the guys in central queensland are working right. on but um you know there's there is tremendous leaps in in uh available information for mm. farmers you know we're doing we're doing things like electromagnetic surveys of soil mm-hmm. to determine the so, uh, the moisture holding capacity of a field where the best place is to put a moisture probe mm. to make a decision on irrigating that field okay. there's uh, incredible technology now for land leveling um, that you know you, in, you you gather the data as you normally travel over the field, mm-hmm. the, the level data as well as other data, input into this program. It's a program that's been developed in Australia, which is John Deere have, have um, tied up for the US market, so it's another big tick for Australian technology. Nice. Um, a company called Precision Cropping Technologies and Pre- Precision Terrain Solutions has developed this stuff. And um, they can... Uh, put this into their program and tell you the cheapest way to move that soil. Right. So it's not like a normal old laser mm-hmm. setup that says it, we're going to have this grade. They'll put it in and, and potentially save you tens of thousands of dollars by not having to move mm-hmm. unnecessary soil to get the the same effect. So, okay. So look, there's some wonderful things happening. For years, there's been um, yield monitoring. Mm-hmm. People monitoring the yields coming off. Uh, grain harvesters or cotton pickers. Uh, now we can do that with with uh, cane harvesters as well, um, and uh, those yield maps will then help you to manage the field for you know what what inputs do we need mm-hmm. to put here or less inputs into different places, and mm-hmm. so it's all about you know breaking down the size of the management zones if you like in a field right. into much smaller zones, yeah. so that. Um, you know, more detailed management can be done for an overall better result. Mm-hmm. Okay, interesting. Yeah, I, I enjoyed my conversation with Campbell and uh, particularly talking about that part of, you know, mm. what he's doing now and, you know, how it's changing the entire workforce yes. in that they're trying to attract to, you know, where are they based? Um, Emerald. Like, yeah, uh, attracting Emerald. sort of robotic engineers mm. and, you know, uh, skill sets that, you know, even five years probably yes. would never have even been seen there. Mm. So um, uh, a big part of this podcast is 
uh, for people who are aspiring to be CEOs uh, uh, to listen to those who have walked the path before them mm. uh, and perhaps pick up some wisdom. I mean, you've talked a lot about having a very customer-centric culture to your business as being mm. a big part of your success. But, you know, what, what have been some of the other key learnings along the way that you'd like to share? <clears throat> I think... Um I think, you know, and this is a, everyone says this about leadership, but being, being a good follower, being a, being, having the ability to, to um, you know, do, follow others and, and be under leadership as well. Okay. Yeah. I think that's, that's critical. Yeah. Um, you know, that, that um, you know, if I could uh, instill that into young people, you know, that come along and, you know, the, the younger generation want to, you know, get to the top pretty quickly. Mm-hmm. But if you know, if we could instill into them that you know you you need to demonstrate that you're really good at at um, you know showing respect and yep. and following someone that's leading you, mm-hmm. irrespective of their um, ability to lead well. <laughs> right. You know, that's a that's a key thing. Um, I think I think just the competitive. Being competitive, you know, wanting to win mm-hmm. um, is, you know, that's that's just got to be part of mm-hmm. being in charge of something. You know, yeah. What are, what do you want to achieve? And you know, really having a desire to win and being able to instill that into your people mm-hmm. is is critical. Um, uh, but look, I you know, I think um, um, you know, yeah. Developing our people is has always been something that I'm probably not very good at, but you know, often I think well, people learn by example if they see how you treat a customer or see how you you know hear how you want someone treated, then mm-hmm. that's how that's how it's done. Yeah, well, you know, I mean, certainly, you know, in preparation for this conversation, I know many younger people working in the agri space, and I've mm. asked them if they know your business mm. and your brand is extremely well known and mm. definitely regarded as. Uh, an employer of choice, so you must be doing a few things right. Yeah, well, hopefully, but, you know, we still have too many people leave. Right. <laughs> for various reasons. Yeah. Um, but, look, you know, I think for me, I don't know if I'm answering your leadership question here, but for me, I want to I want to attract young leaders or young people who, who have the right attitude towards leadership. Mm-hmm. And I want to – I'd like to develop in myself the skill – to be able to identify those people, right? You know, because that's something you know I see as being, you know, uh, a, a key skill for any leader is to say, well, who, you know, look around, who's yeah. got the attitude you want to? Yeah, you know, some things are obvious, but others are, are not. Oh, if you um, look at you know the big American corporates, they put massive amounts of money into building these internal succession plans mm. and identifying people as a graduate that are going to be the future, you know, C level executives. Um, so yeah. there's quite a science to it, uh, mm. for sure. One thing I don't enjoy is when someone, uh, you know, has a has a desire and a and a um, a push to become uh, to go ahead of where they I think they're capable. Yeah, <laughs> that's always a bit challenging to deal with. Yeah, and and you know that's a pretty common trait. Yes, young people. Yeah, yeah, and, for sure. Uh, I've said this a few times on the podcast. Um, I was part of a panel of. Uh, Australian Institute of Management talking to, I don't know, 100-odd young people about, and it was about building a personal brand. Mm. You know, the three other people on the panel are all this similar age and talking about blogs and Snapchats and, mm. you know, Instagrams and this and that and so on. And they said to me, oh, Mr. Triggs, what do you think? Is the older person on the panel. <laughs> and I said, well, the reality is the best personal brand you can have is just do a good job, mm, you know, absolutely. Uh, under, under promise and over deliver. Exactly. And uh, if people just did that, you know, then I think a lot of the other stuff's fairly irrelevant. And yeah, it's also interesting, um, you know, you make the comment about being a good follower. And I mm. think that, uh, you know, leaders are lauded, you know, and everything is all about leaders and, and mm. they get all the attention. But, you know, being a good follower is within itself a very valuable and a very key skill set. Mm. And not everybody needs to be a leader in no. order to derive 
satisfaction from their own doing a, mm. doing good work. Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. great. So I think, well, one other comment about leadership, you know, I, I, um, uh, there's a, there's a well-known, uh, figure in the Bible called Moses. Right. And I've heard a, of him. You've heard of Moses. Yeah, apparently had a good beard. Yeah. <laughs> Lots of beards in the Bible. Uh, Mo- there was a quote about Moses, and I can't tell you exactly where it was in the Bible, but it said he was the, the greatest man on earth and the most humble. Right. So I think those two things go together as well. So, um, you know, there's plenty of people who are in great position, right? but they're not necessarily very humble. Well, what's this? It's a, I think it's an Australian farming saying, beware the farmer with the wide-brimmed hat. <laughs> That's what you're talking about, isn't yeah. it? Yeah, well, yeah. exactly. And, you know, I, I, you know, I just think you, you can see in our industry, and look, let's face it, in all industry, people can tell whether someone's genuine or not. Yeah. So it's just about being genuine, mm. not having too high an opinion of yourself. Yeah. And and uh, being willing to get in and and you know do stuff with everyone else and mm-hmm. and that's a, that's a good trait of leadership I yeah, think definitely. So before we wind it up, because I know that you've got a long drive home, uh, last question. You know we've talked a lot about work today, but when you're not at work, what are the kind of things that uh, you like to do to have fun? Um, okay, fun. <laughs> <laughs> What's that? <laughs> <laughs> You know, uh, to quote Basil Fawlty, when when Sybil said to him something about fun, he said, "Oh yes, fun. I remember that." Yeah. <laughs> um, no, we, uh, my wife and I like to travel. Okay. So we we've done a fair bit of travelling, and you know we enjoy different cultures and yeah. and things like that. So that's something we can do occasionally. Mm-hmm. Um, I've got a, a little recently uh, bought a little farm. Okay. Up in near the Bunya Mountains, which oh, is. Yeah. Which is uh, fulfilling that childhood dream of being a farmer, right? <laughs> Just a little cattle block, so okay. So uh, it's very low maintenance, and I get to go up there and pretend I'm right. you know, driving around. And You've got a few head of cattle out there. Yeah, I have cattle on adjustment there. Okay, so, right. Um, but you know, it's nice to go out there and mm-hmm. sort of kick your own dirt and yeah, stuff. Yeah, sure. <laughs> And uh, do you have children in the business? So no, we don't have children at all. Oh, so, okay. Yeah, so right. um, uh, that allows us to travel and do right. all sorts of things. So where's the next holiday? Uh, well, the the next trip, there is a trip uh, I only learnt about today, which is lovely. We're going to Mexico in right in uh, in March. Okay. So that's a nice thing. In fact, that's a John Deere trip. So oh, that's good. Right. Um, but um, I, I actually. Uh, for a Toowoomba person, one of my other th- hobbies, which I'm definitely not good at, is surfing. Right. So I've got a bunch of friends who we I used to hang around with in my 20s. Yeah. And we'd go surfing and we did all sorts of stuff. Where we all reacquainted ourselves with each other mm-hmm. a couple of years ago when we all turned 50. Right. And, um, and been doing a bit of surfing again since then. But as I say, right. I can't send you any YouTube clips uh, because <laughs> on a, on a, on a there big, isn't any. A big Malibu, no doubt. <laughs> yeah. Well, a mini Malibu. A mini Malibu. Uh, yeah, right. yeah, yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. But just uh, like if, if I can swing back slightly, Richard, sorry. One thing I would like to say is that you know, back on the, the farming thing and everything, mm-hmm. you know, I'm very interested in, in northern Australia. Uh-huh. Um, I see a huge potential up there. I think it's a, I think there's a, a risk that uh, northern projects don't necessarily benefit the local communities up there right. if they don't have the right the right uh, attitude towards building an industry. Yeah. So I think the, the northern uh, development will be more successful because there are some new projects that are happening right. uh, across the north. They'll be more successful the more they spend some money locally okay. rather than have all their inputs from outside. So that's one thing we've witnessed. We've been in northern Australia since 1999 mm-hmm. and we've certainly witnessed a, a high level of support from some mm-hmm. and a high level of lack of support from others. Right. And I think it's, it's going to be... A telling factor for how well the North develops. So, right. I need to get in front of some politicians if they'll ring okay. me back. Yeah, right. <laughs> and have a conversation about that. But mm-hmm. um, 
that's certainly something I'm very passionate about. So. Oh, very good. Mm. Well, look, uh, I wish you all the very best. Thanks very much. I appreciate your time today. Thanks, Richard. I'm sure Richard. people will find this very interesting conversation. And uh, have a fantastic afternoon. Thanks again, Richard. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, thanks again for joining me on the Aratech podcast. I hope you enjoyed that conversation with Bruce. I'm looking forward to having you along for future episodes. And in the meantime, have a fantastic day.